Good morning. I don't know about you. I'm ready to storm the gates. Let's go. So, gates of hell, that is. Um, we are going to be in the book of Genesis this morning, if you would like to turn there. Um, as you're turning there, uh, if you're new with us, I just want to say welcome. My name is Andy Peterman. I get the opportunity and the privilege to be the pastor here. And if you're new with us and if you've been gathering with us forever, I just want to take a moment for us all to just really hone in on the significance of what it is that we are getting to do right now. That us alongside millions of people around the world are taking time out of the busyness of life that wants to try and pull us away, and we are coming together to gather around who God is, and to gather around the reading of his word, which is truth. That you, you Google so many things, and you're going to get opinions, you're going to get people saying, well, this is my truth, but that's not your truth, and it's like, no, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way the truth and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through him. On the night that Jesus was being betrayed, he is about to give his life in the most grotesque way that the Romans knew how to take a life at that time, that the beating he was going to go through would have killed anybody else pretty much. And then he goes to the cross and he hangs there for six, seven, eight hours. And on the night before all of that happens, Jesus takes this moment to pray. And he prays for us. In John chapter 17, which Dale was just in it. And he said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so we are gathering together at this time to hear God's word, that we are going to be in the word of God. It's not what I have to say. It's not what anybody has to say. My, my prayer is I'm the vessel that God uses to speak his truth to us. That we gathered and we sang songs together. And we don't just do that to hear how great our voices are, because mine's terrible. But we do that to remind each other of the truths that we find in scripture. That as Craig opened up with, that we do it in a melody because we can easily remember that. We're going to be going home and catch ourselves singing, It Is Well, or 10,000 Reasons. That we remind each other through song the truths of God's word, the truth of who he is. That we then come together to remind ourselves of the truth that there's no way we're getting to God except through the sacrifice that Jesus made. That your moral goodness isn't going to be able to get you any closer to God, nor your moral badness is going to get you any further away from God if your faith is in who Jesus is and the sacrifice that he made. And then now as we're doing, we gather together to hear the truth. It is truth. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That this book that might have been written centuries and even millennia years ago is just as true today for us. The Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That it's the wholeness of God's word. From cover to cover, it is all, as Paul tells us, 
breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that when we are in the word of God, we are receiving truth from God. We are receiving something that is not outdated, but it is living and active. It continues to speak to us, and it's the voice of God. It is inspired. It is breathed out by God. That is not man's opinion. It's not governments coming together to try and make something up. It is God, the creator of the world, who is speaking to us. So we're going to open up in a word of prayer, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to pray scripture over this passage and over our message this morning. It's going to be based out of Psalm 119. It's the longest book in the Bible or chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses honed in on finding joy in God's word. And so the words are going to be on the screen and I'm going to pray them out loud. And I'm just going to encourage you if you will read along and have these words based out of scripture, be your prayer for God to speak to us this morning. And so God, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is our delight. Let our soul live and praise you and let your rules help us. And then as Jesus prayed, sanctify us in truth, God. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray that. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, Heather and I went on vacation and we went to Cancun. I kind of talked about it briefly a a couple weeks ago. Um, And if you've never been to Cancun, it is the most beautiful water I have ever seen in my life. I mean, that's like not even doing it justice, but you have so many different shades of color, so much so that we went to Cancun the first year, we traveled down the coast, we rented a car and just traveled, and then our last day, it was like, let's go actually see the resort part. So we drove up there, and we saw this water, and that's when that photo was taken. And Heather was like, oh, I didn't know water like this existed. And I thought all water was brown and murky. And so it was like, yeah, I didn't know water like this existed either. So it was like, let's go again. So we get some kind of deal in uh, email that's like, hey, for this much money, you can come back and you have to sit through a timeshare presentation, but it's worth it. So we were like, okay, we'll do it. Like we can say no. So then we go back and we actually get the resort and we see this beautiful water again. And then we go through the presentation and they're like, hey, for only like $14,000 in your kidney and one lung, you can come here as much as you like for an extra $1,000 a year. And it was like, no. And they were like, well, would you want to come again and hear us present to you one more time? And you can see the water and like they're smart because they have us looking at that water and it's hot in there. And it's like, oh, we just want to be in that. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll come again. And so we went again. And this time they came to us and they were like, you want the really fast presentation? And it's like, you know about us, don't you? We're saying no, no matter what. And they're like, yeah, let's go. And so it was like an hour and we were done. But we saw that beautiful water. And I mean, we hung out there and I enjoyed it. But by the end of the trip, I was ready to come home. 
It was like by the time we're getting ready to load up and pack everything and leave, I was like, you know what, Kansas is where I belong. I love going to Cancun and seeing that beautiful water. I even love going to the mountains, seeing the snow caps, snowboarding down them. But Kansas is where I love to be. Kansas is home to me. But if you talk to somebody who lives on one of the other coasts and you talk about being from Kansas, usually you get the same response. You mean where Dorothy lives? Like we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Real quick, I hope your opinion of me doesn't get lowered on this. I've never seen that movie. Lived in Kansas my whole life, never seen Wizard of Oz. It's kind of a point of rebellion right now. Not going to watch it just so I can be that Kansan that has no idea what they're talking about. But if you live on the coast, you're like, Kansas? You mean that flyover state? That state that we just want to get in a plane and cross all the way over so that we can land? And it's like, hold on. No, Kansas. The beautiful country, wow, geography is not great. The beautiful state that it is. I mean, we've got sunflowers, we've got wheat fields, we've got rolling in thunderstorms, we've got sunsets like you're not going to get elsewhere. And then we've got people that are incredible. We wave at strangers going down the road. We make sure we get two fingers up or the correct finger because we don't do the other one. Like that just gets road rage going on. But Kansas, it's my home. Say that it's a flyover state kind of insults me. So why do I open up with that? Because I feel like there is a part of the Bible that we call the flyover part of the Bible. It's that part of the Bible that we don't really understand. It's that part of the Bible that has weird names, weird locations, weird rules, weird traditions. It's, it's full of prophecies that we don't understand. It's full of stories that are just plain weird and then you have books that are like if you're tired take a NyQuil and read a chapter and you'll be gone in no time so what do we do we skip them I mean be honest how many of you know what first chronicles chapter one through chapter nine says the only reason I know is because I skipped it recently it's genealogies for nine straight chapters this guy fathered this guy who fathered this guy who fathered. I mean, you're about to fall asleep on me right now. And so we skip over all of that stuff. And we say, you know what, God, that part is not important. It's like the flyover. Let's get to the good stuff. And I believe what God is saying is, man, you are missing out on so much that we are called to understand the Old Testament because it points to the need for the New Testament in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as some unknown guy has said one time, I've heard it said, I don't know who said it, all scripture whispers of who Jesus is. And then you have some passages that just straight out scream it, but the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is still the main character in the Old Testament. So we're going to be in this series where we are looking at the Old Testament. And it's going to be this massive 30,000 foot view. It's going to be like drinking water through a fire hydrant. I mean, full blown pressure going, try and grab what you can. That's why you have this little cheat sheet in your bulletin. So for you note takers, you type A people who are like, man, I wish I could just write something down and stay awake during his sermons. You're welcome. Merry Christmas in June. Because there's a lot of information here, but it's all going to point to Jesus. And that's how we're going to kind of break this down. 
We're looking at book by book, Jesus in the Old Testament, so that hopefully as you go back and you're doing your reading and you realize today's reading calls for me to read the Old Testament, you're going to know how to see Jesus in that text. You're going to know this is how it lines up to us being here today, reading the truth of God and holding firm to his truth. Because Jesus, even whenever he was, uh, after he resurrected and he's walking down the Emmaus road with two disciples, he starts to talk to them. And in Luke chapter 24, it says that he started with Moses and the prophets. He used the Old Testament because the New Testament was just starting. I mean, they were writing it. They were living it at that time. And he said, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The Old Testament is not flyover. It is to be driven through meticulously and studied and seen. This points to Jesus. So we're going to start at the very beginning. And again, it's going to be a lot. So if you're like, I don't care about information, hang in there. Because it ends with application. And all you information people who this is like me geeking out, this is me. I love this. I have been itching to get to this series because I love context, I love history, I love the dates and all that stuff. So bear with me through this, but I believe God has a word for us through the Old Testament. So we're gonna start out quick snippets, fun facts out of the book of Genesis. First off, the word Genesis comes from a Greek word, geneseos, meaning the origin, the source, or the beginning, or the generations. This is actually in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated in Greek. And in Genesis chapter 2, it starts out with this word, the Geneseo. Geneseo, the beginning. In the beginning. In the Hebrew, the word is actually Bereshith, or in the beginning. Genesis is the first book in your Bible, and it is chronologically the first book that happens, but Job, like your Bible's not written chronologically. You like you have the first five books which are chronological, you have Judges through Ruth chronological, but then you get to like Job eventually, which happens during the time of Genesis. The author, Moses. Even Jesus points to this as Moses being the author. It was written somewhere around 1446. It was written to the Israelites as they were exiting Egypt. So they are the original audience. The book covers 2,000 plus years. It starts at creation and it runs all the way through the life of Joseph about 1816 BC. The first 11 chapters cover more than 2,000 years in themselves. The final 38 chapters, 39 chapters cover only about 300, <coughs> a little less. Main characters, you have, these names are going to ring a bell probably, because Genesis is an enjoyable read out of the Old Testament. There's action, there's things going on. So you have Adam and Eve, you have Noah, you have Abram, who later becomes Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, who later becomes Israel, and you have Joseph. Some of the major events that happen during the book of Genesis. First off, pretty important, how did we get here? In the beginning, God created. You have the creation of the world. You also have how we got here. 
As in, why is the world in constant decay? Because sin enters into the world. God tells the Adam and Eve, do not eat of that fruit, and they do not listen. And I wish I could say it stopped there. But instead, it continues on for generation after generation after generation. From that moment that Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, man was separated from God. Because it says that they were naked and afraid and ashamed. They were not able to be unhindered in the presence of God. Not only that, in front of each other. Adam, who was able to walk around, kind of weird to talk about in front of everybody, but Adam walking around naked, like fully naked, not loincloth Adam like we see in the Bible accounts, but fully exposed in front of of his wife, no shame, and vice versa. Sin enters in. They try and cover themselves. And for the past 6,000 plus years, we've been doing the same thing. Not just with physical clothing, but we hide behind walls. I can't let people see who the real me is. I have to hide a little bit because I'm ashamed of my past. I'm ashamed of the things that I've done. It's the continuing story of man trying to cover our own shame. You have Genesis 5 which repeats over and over this theme of the consequences of sin entering the world. You have Adam gave birth, or he didn't give birth. He fathered Seth, and then he died. Seth fathered somebody, and then they died. This continuing theme through Genesis 5 of death entering because of the depravity and the sin of man. The consequences, the wages of sin is death. You have a result of that, the flood comes. Because man just continues to get worse and worse in their sin, so much so that God says, I regret even creating humankind. And he says, I'm gonna wipe out the entire earth, but he finds eight faithful and he gives them grace. And Noah and his family are saved and then they are given the promise or the the command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So they do that, and the earth grows, and man is living in this area, and they say, you know what, we want to be with God. We want to be up there with God, so we're going to build a tower to be with God, and it's the Tower of Babel. And God sees they are coming up to us, and it's not good that man is able to put all their minds together, so he disperses them, and he confuses their language. Then we have the call of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him. We have the birth of Isaac when Abraham was 100 years old. Imagine having a child at that age. I'm already thinking when my Isaiah is 18, that's going to put me at 63. No, 53. Geography and math are not my specialty. Um, Hopefully I can be a good parent. But uh, I married a good one, so we'll be good in that department. But imagine being that old and being a dad or a mom, because Sarah was 90. I mean, she was right behind him. So we have Abraham giving, having Isaac. We have the testing of Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice to God. We have Jacob, Isaac's son, who steals the birthright from his older twin brother Esau. We have Jacob wrestling with God. We have Jacob fathering 12 sons. We have Jacob becoming Israel, who the nation becomes named after. We have Joseph, Jacob's youngest son, sold into slavery to Egypt by his brothers. And then we have Joseph, 
works his way up to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. A famine happens, so Joseph's family ends up needing to come and buy supplies from Joseph, and he welcomes the entire family in, and the nation of Israel grows, and then it is ending in the book of Genesis with the death of Joseph. And so those are kind of the main events. I told you, boom, we're throwing a lot out there. The theme of Genesis is pretty much the call and the selection of God's chosen people, the Israelites. Genesis contains two important covenants. The first one is uh, the Noahic. It's Noah, I see, the Noahic covenant. And we know that covenant, that God sends the flood and then he makes a covenant with his people and says, never again will I destroy the earth in this way. And so when the rains come, I'm going to put my bow in the sky and you will see it and know that I will never bring a flood like this upon the earth. That's found in Genesis chapter nine, verse nine through 16. Quick little side note, didn't know if I was gonna do this. We're going there. We're in the month of June. It's known as Pride Month, a month where secular world has been allowed to hijack the rainbow. Now, this is a theological statement. It's not an opinion because you know what the rainbow came as a covenant of? That God would never destroy the earth because of sin in that manner again. And now we have allowed the rainbow of God's covenant with his people to be used as a blatant sign of living in open defiance to God. God's people need to speak the truth in love. But we need to be out there speaking out that this is what God says. And We don't necessarily go out speaking condemnation. That's going to come. But we speak God's truth, followed by grace. In John chapter 8, Jesus is uh, dressed by the woman caught in adultery, and she comes and is kneeling in front of him. And after he gets rid of everybody else, because everybody is not without sin except for Jesus, he turns to the woman and he says, woman, where are they who condemn you? And she looks around and she says, there's no one, Lord. And he leads with grace. He says, neither do I condemn you. But then he doesn't leave out truth. He says, therefore, go and sin no more. That that is the message that we are to proclaim, that God came to redeem us. That's the message of the Old Testament, that because of our sin, we are pulled away from God. And through Jesus, we are able to be made new with God again. That the rainbow is a beautiful thing of God's covenant with his people that never again will he flood the earth again. I'm done with that. The second covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the one where God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, the 75-year-old man still living with his dad who is building idols to foreign gods and God calls him out and says, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I will make known to you. And when you go, I'm going to bless you. And everyone who blesses you will be blessed. And everyone who curses you will be cursed. And through you is going to become this amazing nation and the whole world is going to be blessed through. And then later on, God confirms that covenant with Abraham through the covenant of circumcision. That's Genesis chapter 12. You'll find it in Genesis chapter 15. And then the covenant of circumcision being in Genesis chapter 17. That God is making these covenants with his 
people. What did Abraham do? Nothing. God called him out to be this great nation. Genesis sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. For the story of the redemption of mankind. It is the first chapter in the story of God redeeming his people. What Genesis starts, Revelation finishes. So for example, Genesis opens up with the creation of the land and the sea. Revelation culminates with the land and the sea being thrown into the abyss. Being destroyed completely. That's Revelation chapter 21. Genesis opens with the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars to give light to the world. Revelation culminates with God's glory being the light to everyone. There's no need for a sun, moon, and stars because God dwells with his people and his glory shines upon his people. Genesis shows the curse on the earth because of sin. Revelation reveals that in the new heaven and the new earth, nothing is accursed. We will be in new created bodies. We will be in the glory of God. We will receive the redemption once and for all, and there will be nothing that is accursed. Genesis shows the promise of that coming redemption, whereas Revelation reveals the ultimate redemption. Genesis opens up and introduces Satan in his deception of mankind, of God's chosen people, God's people. Revelation reveals the ultimate defeat of Satan. Genesis opens with Adam reigning in the Garden of Eden with his wife Eve. Revelation closes with Christ, the second Adam, reigning in eternity with his wife, the church, with us. Genesis reveals or opens with mankind being ruined, paradise lost. There's a book about that. The Bible closes with the promise redeemed, paradise regained. So that's, again, a very rough, a very high arching, drinking through a fire hydrant information on the book of Genesis. But what we're going to do with our remaining time is we're going to specifically look at how Christ is seen in the book of Genesis. Because I would say that the overarching thing of Genesis is the promise fulfilled. That right away when sin enters the world, God is making a promise to mankind that someday you're going to be redeemed. Someday you are going to be back in relationship with me. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. There are three specific messianic prophecies, which those are prophecies that specifically say the Messiah, the one that will come and save the world, take away the sins of the world, is going to come. Genesis 3.15, the first one, right after the fall of man, God promises, he says, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent seed and the woman's seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what they call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel where Jesus is going to come and defeat the work of Satan. And it is fulfilled in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The second messianic promise is Genesis 12, 3. He said, In Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
The first words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, again, another flyover passage, says that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that Jesus, the Messiah, came from Abraham. The third one is Jacob. When he's giving a blessing to his sons, he says to his son Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And in Luke's account, again, we see in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verse 33, that Jesus came from Judah. But John, while he's exiled on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, when they open or when they bring out the fifth scroll and John says there is nobody worthy to open it, one of the elders comes to John and says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He is the one that is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Those are specific prophecies about Jesus. We also see what uh, in like the theological realm, they call them typologies. There's different types of Jesus. And these are like events, their rules, their people that foreshadow the coming of Jesus. So Adam is one of them. We already mentioned that Genesis has Adam reigning with his wife in the garden. Revelation has the second Adam, Jesus reigning in eternity with his wife. But also you see, Adam was not born of natural means. God created him. Jesus was not born of natural means. Instead, he was born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit. They both came from unnatural, special means. Adam is the head of the old creation. Jesus is the head of the new creation. You have Adam, you have Melchizedek. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. And then the writer of Hebrews confirms saying, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek also shows our need for a great high priest because he says if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. So you have Adam, Melchizedek, and then the last one, Joseph is considered by many to be the greatest example of Jesus. I had never thought of that. But then as I read on it, here's some similarities. Both are specially loved by their fathers. Both were hated by their brothers. Both were rejected as rulers over their brothers. Both were conspired against and sold for silver. Both were condemned even though they were innocent. And both were raised from humiliation to glory by only the working of God. Joseph was thrown in, the, in prison. God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And he became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt under Pharaoh. Jesus came in humble origins. He ended up dying a death of humiliation only to be raised to glory through the only way that it could be done through God raising him from the dead. So that's a lot of Jesus in the book of Genesis, but there's one that I want us to look at, and it's, it's the overarching theme of the Old Testament, really, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. 
Because we've already mentioned, Genesis introduces the theme of sin entering the world. And because of sin, it is pulling man away from God. And that for the rest of time, man has attempted through our own efforts to draw near to God. The Tower of Babel, my own thinking, my self-righteousness allows me to be in God's favor over and over. Throughout my own life even, I try and think I can be right with God based on what I do. And right away in Genesis, we see it's not based on what we do. It's based solely on only what God could do. So Genesis chapter three, verse six, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So right away here, we see the DNA of pretty much all sin in the world. The DNA of sin is this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. She had lust of her eyes. She saw something and she thought, I want it. Isn't that usually how we get in trouble? We think, you know what? I see that. I want it. I deserve it. She saw it, that it was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. So also she has the lust of the flesh. Not only is she seeing it and wanting it, she's thinking, my body can handle this. I deserve this. I'm going to give in to the impulses of my body, which again, if we could control our impulses, that would probably save us 90% of our headache. But instead, we see something and we want it. We desire something with our body, and even though our mind is telling us, no, 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 don't go down that road, we go down that road. We listen to our body. Ephesians tells us that. We were slaves to our bodies. We were just carrying out the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. Also, the last one is that the tree was desired to make one wise. There's the pride of life right there. You have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because that's the third one. I can handle it. I know I'm not supposed to do this. God actually told me that I should not, but you know what? My, I see it, my body wants it, and I'm pretty certain I can handle it. So I'm gonna full-fledged go into it. We see the DNA of all sin. Not only that, we see what I'm gonna say is the continuing sin of Adam that I would say pretty much every single man in the world right now struggles with. And that's the, the sin of being overly passive. And I know there's a lot of people that are like, <laughs> I run to conflict. It's like, yeah, you're probably pretty passive in a lot of ways. Because notice what it says about it. That she took the fruit and ate it, and she turned and gave it to her husband who was with her. Again, if you're an underliner in your Bible, I would underline with her. And he ate it. Who was it that God gave the command to? It was to Adam. Who was it that God entrusted to be the spiritual leader of the family there? It was Adam. Yeah, we like to say that woman ate of the fruit, and from that moment on, a woman's never been able to make a decision about where to eat because she messed it up one time. Ha <laughs> funny joke. What about mankind? What about men who have been passive in their families, passive in their marriages. And they're like, well, I provide for my family. Yeah, at the expense of being gone 80 hours a week and your children don't know who their father is. 
at the expense of being there and giving your wife the cold shoulder and not leading spiritually the way that men are called to lead? Why is it that churches are full on Mother's Day, but on Father's Day, it's out fishing, it's out hunting, it's out sporting, it's out doing anything but leading the church and leading their families. We see the passivity of men right there, and it is one that runs from conflict. We have a fatherlessness uh, infection in this nation, in our world. And I'm not saying that it's just men not being in the home. I'm saying that it's men being absent even if they're in the home. That God is calling us as men, lead your families. And just like there with Adam, it's like, well, we're in the same house. That's the thing I realized as Heather and I were getting ready to get married and even as we got married, you know, there's the five love languages. One of them is quality time. And to me, quality time was we are on the same property. It's like I have a Saturday off. She has a Saturday off. Let's spend it together. I'll be in the shed. She's in the house. I come in. Boy, that was a great day with you. And she's like, I saw you for a total of an hour. That's not quality time. That is being absent from the home. That we are called to invest in our families. More than I would even say, you could buy your kids, buy your wife $50,000 toys. And if you're not there, they're going to be like, you know what? I got stuff, but I missed out on the most important thing. I missed out on that influence in my life. I missed out on that man showing me how to grow up. And I'm not just saying for young boys, I'm saying for young women. Why is there such a sex pandemic going on right now? It's because of fatherlessness. Not just out of the home, but in the home. And it's infecting the church as well. And we are called as men to rise up and be the head of the house. We love saying Hebrews chapters, uh, not Hebrews, Ephesians 5, 25. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And it's like, you woman, you need, wow. Um, we're just flowing right now. I'm passionate about this though. But that's what people say. I don't say it because I'm better than that. But people say, woman, you need to submit to me. I might be guilty of that. But it's like, you're not deserving of being submitted to. Because you know what, actually, Ephesians 5.25, the verse I originally said, that's like 5.23. 5.25 actually says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He gave himself up for it. He gave himself up for her. That's how we're called to lead. Not being absent, not providing a bunch of stuff, but leading the way that Christ led the church. We see that right there in Genesis chapter 3. Eve turned and gave it to her husband who should have said, no, we're not going down that road. We're going to be faithful to God. But instead, he just was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take some of that. And we have been paying the price ever since. But again, when they, now back on track, uh, the story continues in Genesis, that they eat the fruit they are guilty of the sin. And then what do they try to do? They try and cover it up themselves. It says that they go and the eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. 
The response of Adam, of Adam and Eve is the same response we have every time we fall short, every time we sin. Oh, how can I make this right? What can I do? I'll give more money, I'll attend more, I'll serve more, I, I'll do better, I won't do something. We try and make it better on our own. We think we can fix it. We will go to God on our own effort. It's never going to happen. We can never get to God on our own effort. We will never be able to make things right on our own. God is the only one who can cleanse us. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them, that it was only God who could cover them. Not only that, they attempted to cover themselves and they weren't able to do that. God covered their sin, but also there's something that we can breeze over really quick there. God made it out of garments of skin. In order to cover the sin of mankind, a sacrifice had to be made. We are again seeing Jesus played out through all of this. That death had to happen because Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And we see that right there at the very beginning. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God implements the sacrificial system. But in Hebrews, we are told it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It reminds us of our sin, but it doesn't actually cleanse us. But instead, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The sacrificial system could never make us clean. It was only the work of Christ. Only the work of Jesus on the cross where Colossians tells us it canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. He nailed it to the cross. Even this, the gospel of God so loving the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see that shouted right here. In the opening chapters of the Bible. That man was never going to be able to be right with God on our own. So only God could do what could be done for us to come to him. And ultimately it's through the work of Jesus. We see this even in Abraham sacrificing his only son as God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham has knife in hand, getting ready to stab his son. And it says he reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, and God provides a ram in place. He provides a sacrifice in the place of what Abraham was supposed to pay, his only son. So that the writer of Hebrews tells us, therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us, in verse 16 of chapter 4, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time 
of me. Why is it that the book of Genesis is so important for us to actually read? Because through the book of Genesis, we see our need for a savior. We see through the Old Testament, the reoccurring attempts to make things right on our own. And then it leads to Jesus giving his life, God giving his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Through Genesis and through all the rest of the Old Testament, we see our need for a savior and we see the faithfulness of God. They point to the promised coming Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfilled promise who in Revelation chapter 21, verse five, we're told makes all things new. Father God, I thank you for doing the work that only you can do. That as we see in these Old Testament books, God, you are still at work. And we see it as the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are the same God 